This is the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, episode number 19. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We'll help you on your fly fishing journey with classic stories covering steelhead fishing, fly tying, and much more. How's it going, everyone? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. In today's episode, I interview Dean Finnerty, a fly fishing guide on the North Umpqua. We talk about his personal connection with Frank Moore and Harry Lemur, find out why he doesn't like cones, and why he makes his own intruder shanks. Dean goes in depth on how to observe physical reactions and fish behavior to a swung fly and how to catch fish on the North Umpqua, a.k.a. the Graduate School of Steelhead Fly Fishing. Don't miss this one as Dean shares his story as a 26-year narcotics detective and shares the best disguises he used over that time. So, without further ado, here's Dean Finnerty from DeanFinnerty.com. How's it going, Dean? Going great, Dave. Good. Good to have you on here. We uh, <clears throat> we had a little technical difficulties here. It's uh, I didn't know if we were going to be able to put this together, so it's pretty awesome to be uh, actually hearing you here now. So, um, I wanted to dig into a bunch of the information on the... You know, especially the the North Umqua, uh, that's a river we haven't gone in, in depth on yet, and I know you guide down there and know a lot about it, so I'm looking forward to jumping into it. Um, maybe you can start us off with a little history on, on your background, how you got into fly fishing and, and steelhead, and how you became, you know, basically you're guiding now. Um, maybe you can give us a little background there. Sure. So I, I think I was born with the fishing gene, um, being in the water, on the water, around the water. <laughs> Uh, has been, you know, a huge part of my entire life from my earliest childhood memories. You know, that's the only place I've ever really uh, wanted to be. And I remember as a kid, uh, I grew up in the Gresham area, not far from the Sandy River, and Johnson Creek was uh, just kind of a stone's throw away. And uh, every day after school, my buddies and I would be down uh, fishing Johnson Creek for Sea Run Cutthroat in the wintertime. Huh, that's cool. Uh, occasionally, we yeah, occasionally we would find a winter steelhead, even coho, I remember one time. Um, and I remember my parents, you know, every day I'd come home from school, you know, you got homework? No, mom, be back in a while, be back for dinner. <laughs> and rod in hand, I would uh, head down to Johnson Creek to fish. And they all the time would tell me, you know, you can't uh, make a living uh, fishing all the time. You know, <laughs> you, you got to, you know, buckle down, go to school, get uh, get good grades get a job and then get an opportunity to fish. And it was funny, a couple of years ago, I do uh, duck and goose hunts, and uh, some spring and fall bear hunts. And I was doing a uh, seminar at Cabela's in Tualatin and my dad was in the audience. And it, it reminded me of those conversations as a kid, you know, you can't make a living fishing and hunting all the time. You got to get a real job. And I, <laughs> I turned to my dad in the audience and I said, Hey dad, do you remember, remember all those years ago, you guys admonishing me for wanting to, uh, <laughs> And time all you know all the time outdoors. Well, guess what? Here I am. There you go. That's <laughs> all cool. These years later. So, yeah, my very first steelhead uh, actually came on my twelfth birthday. Uh, my huh. birthday is early in January, so it was winter steelheading, and it was just a nasty, nasty day in the gorge. And my dad took me down towards the mouth of the Sandy, and uh, to this day, it's probably in the top five of the biggest steelhead that I've ever. Uh, hooked it huh. was it was approaching 20 pounds and i got it on a brass half ounce steely yeah <laughs> there you go spinning rod and an old abu garcia 
uh, spinning reel. That's and, awesome. Uh, yeah, so like it happened yesterday, but that's over forty years ago now. Hmm. Yeah. The uh, so I got, yeah I got into fly fishing early uh, early on. Uh, a friend of mine in grade school introduced uh, fly fishing to me, and I just thought that is just the coolest thing ever. And uh, steelhead on the fly was something that really uh, struck a chord with me early on. I worked for a, a fellow by the name of Mark Bachman. Uh, he, at the time, was managing Gresham uh, store, Larry's Sporting Goods. Oh, yeah. And I started tying flies there when I was about 12, 13 years old. And, uh, Bachman would go through a lot of... Uh, My web search turned something up where I started tying flies there when... Sorry about that. So much oh. for my phone. <laughs> off. Yeah. No problem. At any rate, um, I started tying flies for the Gresham store when I was really young. And then uh, my first trip for Steelhead with a fly rod was actually with Mark and his family. And we went over to the Deschutes for a long weekend and loaded uh, beaver tail down to Max Canyon and Mark's drift boat. And those were the very first times that I ever swung a fly for Steelhead. Hmm. And we kind of laugh about it now. He he said that uh, he ruined my life. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Which you know, obviously couldn't be further from the truth because it, uh, it's been an amazing journey uh, all these years of swinging flies for steelhead, really all over the, the Northwest. Um, I started guiding when I was a teenager on the Clackamas and the Sandy Rivers and uh, then moved down to this part of the state. And I've been guiding down here on the Umpqua, the North Umpqua, and a number of coastal uh, streams down here in Southwest Oregon. Mm-hmm. I'll hook a guide on the Willamette, uh, McKenzie, uh, seasonally for trout, steelhead, things like that. But steelhead really are the, um, you know, that is my fish. Yeah. And getting them on the fly is, is kind of really what I've uh, enjoyed yep. throughout my life. That's cool. Yeah, that's, uh, that's some good history. I love the... Um... I was just talking to Bachman at, uh, oh, some event there and we were chatting. He's going to come on the show here in, uh, probably a, a few, a few weeks, but, um, yeah, that's all I love uh, putting the connections together and the guiding and all that. I mean, it's interesting. I just, um, you know, I talked to a number of guides. I've already had some interviews with them and, you know, some of them are, some of them stick with it and some of them go into, um, you know, repping and stuff like that. What, what's for you, you know, you stuck with guiding pretty much. What's, um, you know, kept you in the guiding as opposed to maybe going another route within the industry? Um, well, I actually have uh, kind of gone into uh, another avenue of, of the industry. Um, and, and to be clear, I, I spent 26 years as a police officer as well. Oh, wow. Uh, I spent about eight years as a narcotics detective, Jeez. um, working undercover kind of all over the West coast. Um, roles, everything from a Buddhist to a biker at one time or another. Um, and then, um, began, uh, guiding when I transferred out of detectives and started supervising a patrol shift and I would work graveyards, uh, for the department. And then that left my days open to guide. And so I would get a few hours of sleep uh, at the end of the day or sometimes midday. There's a couple of places that I would sleep on the North Umpqua during the mid part of the day. Um, there's a, a little maple tree that I used to lay out a sleeping bag under at Williams Creek and, cool. uh, pick up clients early in the morning and we'd fish for a couple, three or four hours until the sun got out on the water. 
and then uh, drop them back off at Steamboat Inn, and I'd go uh, lay in the shade and take a, a, a nap during the mid part of the day, and then meet back up with them late in the afternoon and hmm. uh, finish up our day, and then race back over the mountain and uh, get home, take a shower, and head down to the office, get in uniform, and go work all night. Um, I did that for years, and then wow. if it was rainy or wet, then I would stay at Frank and Jeannie's, and uh, they have a little apartment there at their, at their cabin that I could sleep in. And oh, so, cool. yeah, cool. That's uh, that's that. Frank Moore for those that don't know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then about four and a half years ago, I retired from my career in law enforcement and went to work full time for Trout Unlimited. I'm one of the national staff members for Trout Unlimited. Oh, wow. And then last fall, I took on a new role with TU, and, and now I'm the uh, Northwest Director for the Sportsman's Conservation Project uh, that has, uh, I have responsibility for our protection campaigns in Oregon and Washington, and I also manage our Wild Steelhead Initiative. Hmm. So lots and lots of things going on uh, yeah. with that. Yeah, you're you're t- you're you're one of those uh, overachievers for sure. I mean, I almost want to end the the uh, the fly fishing interview here and talk about your narcotics uh, background. That that's <laughs> that's pretty amazing. <laughs> so you're talking. So you've been into some. Uh, uh, you're saying like undercover and stuff in different. Um, you know. Yeah. So what what was the craziest um, you know disguise you ever did? <laughs> probably, uh, probably my Buddhist. Thing. You know, I, I, it was uh, it was a case that I was working actually for the marshals. The U.S. Marshals had a, a fugitive warrant for a fellow who was a marijuana grower uh-huh. out of Northern California who was a Buddhist, and they got information that he was going to be going to a Buddhist temple in the Lane County area, <laughs> and they wanted somebody inside there. So I had to dress up with a uh, kind of a robe, and my wife pulled my hair up into kind of a little top knot and had some sandals <laughs> on. And, Wow. That went into the temple. Really nice people, but yeah, that, you know, but the people that know me, um, you know, they kind of chuckle when they hear that story. But I spent a fair amount of time as an outlaw biker riding around on oh, a wow. Harley, uh, interacting with, uh, you know, the methamphetamine crowd. Huh. Uh, I did that uh, in Oregon and Washington, a little bit down in California. Crazy. Uh, back in the days, you know, real long hair, long beard, and uh, tons of biker jewelry and leathers and all that kind of stuff. And, um, yeah, people that see photos of me from back in those days, just start, they're kind of shocked. Yeah. I, I enjoyed it. Um, it was very rewarding work. Um, you know, I've always kind of been a people person anyway. So, you know, the gift of gab and, uh, you know, uh, uh-huh. a sense that I was trying to do something, uh, you know, really to kind of help folks out and, you know, most of the people that I interacted in that were, you know, in that world recognized that, you know, methamphetamine was, you know, yep, uh, bad stuff. Bad thing. And, uh, yeah. 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 That's, uh, that's quite a story. Yeah, we'll have to leave that maybe for uh, when we uh, meet up here. Hopefully, uh, you know, we can chat more about your history. I, I, I love uh, that's a, that's always kind of one of the problems with this show is that I always find that we get to the end of it and there's never enough time because especially when I sure. meet with a, uh, you know, kind of interesting guest like yourself. So, yeah, well, maybe we can get into a little bit on the um, the North Umqua and just talk about, you know, maybe break out how you catch steelhead on the north umqua and you know in march um and how that maybe differs from other times of the year and maybe you just step us through if you're you know brand new um to the north you know how would you go down there and just you know get started 
Yeah, so, you know, the North Umpqua has a real unique um, ethic on it. Um, it. It really is kind of a, a good sportsman uh, type of river where, you know, there are parking areas alongside the highway that follow the river uh, on one side, and then you have the North Umpqua Trail, of course, on the other. So, you know, if you really want some solitude and an opportunity to get away from folks, the North Umpqua is really kind of a nice place to do that. Hmm. The ethic that is uh, pretty strictly observed, you know, is that when you're in a piece of water, that's your water, and you're not going to have anybody else come down and and start fishing that. Now, occasionally in the camp water section, you'll have folks come in uh, above you and follow you down through a run. Most of the time, uh, you have the water entirely to yourself. And so uh, I used to really enjoy fishing off the trail side of the river. Um, And if I had clients that were, um, you know, able to walk, you know, a couple of miles on really nice trails, then we would do that. Otherwise, we use the road for transportation from run to run. And there are parking areas that correspond with a particular run. And pretty much every one of those pullouts, if you're, uh, observant and you look around, you'll, you'll find either a really well-used trail that leads down to the pool mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, some not so well. A lot of them are steep. Um, a few of them can be kind of treacherous. I, I have a, a guide colleague of mine that actually had to pack one of his clients back up one of those trails Trace. when he fell broke the leg. Um, so yeah, but you know, most of the trails are, are easily negotiated if, you know, you're, you know, in reasonable shape. Uh, you can park, find the trail, go down to the water, and um, a little sleuthing around on the bank will generally reveal a rock that has, you know, 80 years of complete marks on it, <laughs> and that'll tell you that that's the casting station. Nice. You know, that's, that's the place to start your fishing. And I tell everybody, uh, whether it's summertime or wintertime, you know, you always want to be searching out new water with each presentation unless there's a reason to make a presentation to that same spot a second or a third time, um, the guy that uh, covers the most water at the end of the day usually is the guy that wins. Hmm. Um, so I, I tell everybody, you know, when you come into that run, you'll start off with about a rod length of line, a real short little flip cast, uh, kind of straight across or slightly downstream, depending on the current speed and uh, let the fly swing down through. If you don't get a tug or a grab, you don't see a boil or a flash, pull off a couple more feet of line and repeat. And just continue that process in a real systematic um, kind of a cadence, you know, as, as you start to work down through this run by lengthening your line at the end of each swing a couple of feet um, and working down through, you will cover every inch of that water. And if there's, uh, you know, a steelhead lane in that pool, he will have had an opportunity to see your fly. And then ultimately it's up to him to decide whether he wants to grab it. Mm-hmm. So short, gradually lengthen your cast out until you're either covering the water or uh, you've reached your comfortable casting distance. And then you're going to take a cast, um, let the fly swing down through at the end of that swing, take a step or two. And with the same amount of line, make the next cast. Let it swing, uh, come to the end of the swing, take a step or two. It's a real systematic way of covering the water. And um, all the time, you want to be moving. And the only exception to that movement downstream progression is if you've seen a fish move on your fly, you've felt a tug, uh, you've, you've 
had some event during that swing to let you uh, that indicates you've had you know a player, you know a fish that's right. taken a swipe and fly. And then you can do follow up. There's some follow up techniques that we do. Um, generally in the winter time, um, you know, if you feel a fish, you're generally going to hook them in the summertime when water temperatures are up, you can have fish mess with that fly cast after cast after cast after cast. Uh, I've had them as many as 14 and 15 swipes at a fly, uh, over the course of like a half hour, 45 minutes before we finally hooked them. Crazy. Uh, I've had, you know, a dozen or more times. Uh, where they've done that repeatedly, and we've not gotten them to take the fly solid too, so that happens. But generally, in the winter, if you feel a fish, it's usually one that's eating your fly. And uh, yeah, mm. so that's how I that's how I uh, wow. cover, cover water. Yeah, and so uh, yeah. The other thing I was going to say is, is I, I try not to get into a rut of going to the same piece of water time and time again. If, if you go to a piece of water and, and you can regularly catch fish there, yeah, that's fine. Um, but I always try to search out new water, you know, and I've been guiding down there for 20 years yeah. now. And when I do summer trips during the mid part of the day, I frequently will just seek out a new piece of water. Uh, while I've, you know, while my guests are back at the inn having lunch or taking a nap or whatever, I'm out, you know, bushwhacking, looking at, at different pieces of water. So over the years, um, I've been able to discover uh, a number of pretty cool runs that you know don't have trails down to them, that mm-hmm. don't have a corresponding parking area, um, and and have come across some pretty amazing pieces of water by doing that. So I encourage people, you know, be have a bit of an explorer spirit and uh, break away from you know your routine and and find some new water, and you'll learn a ton. Uh, not only about steelhead behavior, but also, you know, what is good steelhead fly water. Yeah. Uh, I frequently tell people, too, that with the modern equipment that we have today, with our spay rods, and lines, um, fly design, I really don't feel handicapped at all um, fly fishing for winter steelhead. And by that, I mean, you know, if I was fishing conventional tackle or gear, uh, a lot of people really feel strongly that, you know, uh, the gear guy is going to catch more steelhead during the course of the day. And, you know, I guess all things being equal, that's probably true. But if you select quality water uh, that matches your equipment and matches your uh, presentation style, um, you're so efficient and so uh well adapted with this gear and these techniques to cover the water effectively that I really don't feel handicapped. Um, steelhead love structure. And so boulder gardens, you know, mm-hmm. places, lots of uh, uh, rock structure on the bottom uh, are areas that are difficult for a guy drift fishing, for example, with a piece of pencil lead and a, yeah. a yarn fly or whatever to negotiate with, without getting snagged on the bottom and having to change his gear. I'll come in with my gear and put the fly right in the zone, cast after cast, and rarely um, am I hung up or, you know, uh, ticking my fly on rocks or anything. I'm, I'm uh, really effectively fishing by picking the water that's best suited to my gear. And that water for me is usually knee-deep up to about five foot in depth. Mm-hmm. Um, I like a medium current speed, and by that I mean if you you watch a leaf or a a piece of foam or something go by, if it's going by at about a walking speed or slightly slower, that's 
that's kind of the current that I'm looking for. Um, I like seams where there's slow water meeting fast water. And if you can combine that with, you know, depths between knee deep and about five foot deep with that structure on the bottom, I think that is just about as ideal of condition or ideal of uh, water that you're going to find for, for your gear. Yeah. And go down through that real systematically, like I explained before, and cover that water. And if there's a fish there and he's, he's going to grab, mm-hmm. you know, you'll get. Yeah. No, those are uh, all good points. What what sort of, uh, as far as a uh, rod line setup, do you typically use in, you know, this time of, in, in March over there? Yeah. Yeah, it's funny when spay rods first came to the forefront. You know, I've always been a single-handed guy and, and uh, was for years and years yep. and years. Yep. And back in those days, we fished 30-foot shooting heads, usually a 10-foot, 8 or a 9 weight, and uh, 4-foot of 12-pound, you know, Maximas, what I use all the time for my leader. Mm-hmm. And and we would cover the water. We would use, you know, a Type 4 or maybe a Type 6, some days even, you know, a Type 2 or 3 shooting head. And that's what we used to cover the water. You know, Frank taught me how to cast those things. And, you know, 80, 90-foot casts are uh, not difficult to make with a shooting head if you know the technique and how to water load that cast. And then about 15 years ago, 16, 17 years ago, I started having more and more people show up with these big two-handed, you know, yep. <laughs> oh, yeah. monster rods. And they wanted, they expected me to teach them how to use them. And so I kind of got into the spay thing, kicking and screaming. I, yeah. I really embrace it. Um, and back in those days, you know, most of our rods were 14 or 15 foot long. And they were, uh, you know, set up for eight, nine or 10 weight lines. Mm-hmm. They were just big, heavy, monstrous rods that, you know, unless you got a fish in the mid-teens, you know, it really wasn't too much to write home about. No. Uh, just because the rods and so over the years um and i I don't think i'm unique in this at all i think most guys have done the same thing you know we've kind of backed away from those bigger rods and moved down to these smaller lighter rods so today um i would say 95 percent of my uh, time on the water is with a five six weight you know rod that's going to throw 350 to Mm -hmm. or maybe 320 grains up to about 450 um and in a, in a 12 and a half foot rod, it's light in the hand. It's yep. comfortable to cast all day long. And even if you catch, you know, a, you know, a four or five pound fish, you know, it's still going to be a blast. And so I've gotten away from those bigger rods. I, I feel if the rod has the power and the energy to turn over the line uh, effectively with the type of fly that I like to fish, um, I don't need anything more than that. You know, I've caught full Chinook down on the South coast with my little 12 and a half, five, six weight, you know, up to about 24 or 25 pounds. Um, you know, I don't necessarily recommend that because it tends to tax the gear and it definitely, uh, taxes the fish because of, you know, it just, you just don't really have that much power, but it can be done and it can be done reasonably well. So like I say, 90% of the time I'm fishing a 12 and a half, five, six, or a 12 and a half, six, seven. Um, you know, the flies that I fish are uh, not particularly large, um, but they have a specific silhouette and they l- lots of movement. Um, so, you know, rabbit strip style tube flies um, are what I fish most of the time. And uh, like Henry Ford said, you can have it any color you want as long as it's black. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, probably 95% of my steelhead 
on flies that are uh, primarily black in color with uh, blue, yep. uh, green, uh, mm-hmm. just a little bit of flash on them, but lots of movement. Mm-hmm. Yep. No, those are, uh, those are all awesome points. Uh, I was just uh, thinking when you're talking about lines, um, of, uh, on episode, uh, uh, number nine, I had Simon Gosworth on and he talked a lot about lines. So if anybody wanted to take a look at more of the history of, um, you know, rods and lines, you can listen to that. But, um, yeah, I did want to hit on the line. So basically you got a 12 and a half, which is more of a, maybe more of a summer type of, uh, you know, lighter rod, which is great. You know, that's definitely, so you don't have to use a heavy one. Even in March, you don't have to use your, your big heavy winter, um, rod. And what about, so for flies and then what about a lion? What are you, what are you using in, you know, this time of year? for for getting down i mean what what types of flies are you, you said you're using pretty sparsely uh dressed intruders yeah intruders work good um i have kind of my own style of tube fly that i use a lot that's got a rabbit strip uh wing incorporated into it that provides a good silhouette um it's pretty easy to cast and uh lots and lots of movement i think you know having that fly under tension and swimming is really key to the presentation, and we can talk a little bit about Mm -hmm. that. Um, For lines, I fish primarily airflow lines, uh, exclusively airflow lines. I haven't fished anything else for a long time. Um, They've always taken really good care of me, and uh, they they perform really well. The one line that I've been using a lot the last probably four years, I guess, is the Skagit Switch Line. It's a 20-foot... Um, line, it's uh, pretty dense, uh, turns over a fly really well. And uh, I, I have all my tips. I use custom cut tips that Airflow provides and cut them at uh, eight feet. And that gives me one tip that's eight foot long and another tip that's 12 foot long. Yeah. You know, these lines um, uh, looped at each end mm-hmm. at 20 feet. And then I get them in a variety of densities. You know, it, you find that almost if you're fishing the type of water i described a moment ago um there's very few times that i have to change my gear out you know that that line combination or tip combination that i use uh is what i fish you know day after day after day Mm -hmm. occasionally you know a big storm will come along and raise the river up make it kind of pushy and then i've got to go to something a little heavier but um uh, you know, an eight foot long or a 12 foot long uh, length of custom cut tip and around 160 grains or, you know, 140 grains or something. About all I ever use. Okay. And is you this, yeah. Uh, you can change your fly, you know, if you're having problems, you don't feel like you're getting uh, down or uh, if you're, you know, ticking the bottom, you know, definitely change it up. You do not want that fly that deep. Uh, when I'm down on the North Umpqua, if, if water is good, clarity-wise is good, I can stand up on the roadbed in a lot of the pools and have my customers down in the water fishing. And I think people are really surprised at uh, how shallow uh, their fly is actually fishing. Uh, yeah. Most of the time, that fly is not getting any deeper than about two feet under the surface mm-hmm. unless you're fishing some real crazy heavy tip and you know heavily weighted fly. And those fish are going to move to that fly, at least on the North Umpqua. I, you know, I can't speak to every single river system, but on the North, the fish are, are aggressive enough that they'll, they'll move. I was with Frank one day fishing in the Mott water and it's probably about a 12, eight to, well, it's probably closer to 12 foot deep in this one particular section. 
and he was fishing his, you know, his single hander with, uh, I think he had a type four 30 foot shooting head on and a muddler in the winter time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pat Hoagland actually, uh, was with us this day and that fly, it no sooner hit the surface and, and a fish pushing 20 pounds just exploded on the surface, you know, grabbing that fly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm not a, a, a big believer in getting down deep, but I am a believer in speed. If it's really cold, um, and, and when I say really cold, I mean down in the low 30s, it's really key to slow that swing down. Mm-hmm. And I do that with my rod tip. If I want to slow my swing down, I kind of stay behind the line as it's swinging across. If I want to pick up the speed of my swing, then I get the rod tip out ahead of the line uh, and give the uh, current an opportunity to move the line a little quicker. Um, we've caught steelhead on the main stem hump claw down to 31 degrees. Hmm. And it is a bizarre feeling to hold a living, breathing uh, creature that's colder than ice <laughs> in your hands and wow. feel it move. Um, yeah. Those are you know pretty extreme conditions, but you yeah. know, we've, we've done it all the way down to 31 degrees. Huh. And uh, the next day, the river actually froze enough that we, we were done for several days. It froze across. This was a couple Jeez. years ago when we... Arctic blast come down. Oh yeah. Huh. So on the um on the tube flies, do you do any sort of weighted fly or cone or how how do you or do you just use the your sinking line to um get them down? And then on the sinking line, are you using um I was just thinking of um had uh Scott um McGarva on here on episode seventeen and he was talking about how he rarely uses anything more than a um, you know, five foot of T fourteen. Um, yeah. is that typically what, you know, are you using eight foot of T14 or T11 or what, what sort of just, uh, gen, uh, you know, in general, what are you using over there? Yeah. Seven or eight foot of T14 is a real common tip for me. Um, you know, if, if I'm using, you know, the T series line, so, uh, T14, I rarely get longer than 10 foot. Like I say, most of the time it's seven or eight foot. So yeah, I, I totally agree with that on the fly design. I find that the cones, uh, don't allow the fly to swim properly for mm-hmm. the kind of fly that I use. When I've got a uh, inch and a half or two inches of rabbit strip tied in at the top of the fly, if there's just a cone on the front of it, it tends to lay over on its side, and I really want that wing up. I've spent a fair amount of time underwater. I, I dive and snorkel a lot, and when you get underwater and you, you see a fly go over the top of you, um, what you really see is the reflection of that fly in the surface film back down into the water column. And if the fly is swinging on its side, it just doesn't look right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just don't feel like it's swimming properly. So for almost all of my tube flies, um, I use uh, barbell eyes tied in at the bottom of the tube. Okay. And that way I control, it's almost like ballast. And, yep. and it controls how that fly is going to swim. And I think that's pretty important. If you're fishing um, flies that don't have a distinct wing in them, you know, you've got marabou tied mm-hmm. in in the hat, uh, then, then it's not as, as critical. And then can you spin. can and things like that. Uh, I don't, I'm not a big fan of weighted flies. They're a pain in the ass that, excuse yeah. me, they're, they're a pain to turn over. Yeah. Um, I just don't think they're needed. Uh, you want to, you want some weight in the fly to enhance its, swimming ability 
as it moves across on the swing. And that's basically all you want that weight to do. Gotcha. Gotcha. So yeah, so avoid the weight and basically use your line to get it, get it down and then let the fly just, just swim naturally. That's a a good point on uh, adding some kind of some eyes, eyes on there to keep it balanced. I was listening to, actually I interviewed Peter uh, Charles. He, he did some really, um, broke out some really good tips. One of them was on, he was talking about using these flies where there, you know, wasn't any, um, you didn't put any, you know, barbell eyes or anything on it. And he was talking about basically tying a bulk of your material on the top of the tube um, and make it more like the, so the tube would be like an egg shape. So essentially the fly would uh, sit upright because of the whole egg, you know, just like if you throw an actual egg in the water, how it turns because of the design. So if anybody wants to look at that, I'll leave a link in the uh, the show notes. um, As I mentioned at uh, wetflyswing.com slash 19. Um, He's got a, Peter's got a video on that, but no, I think the easy way to do it is just like you said, add on some, some eyes on the bottom and that, that keeps it uh, riding upright. Yeah. Yeah. If if you're fishing a fly that's got a, you know, a set wing in it, especially rabbit strip that, that has a fair amount of water resistance that's going through uh, the current, the barbell eye really allows it to keep right, you know, keep yeah. its position. Yeah, good, good. And those are, um, and typically, uh, as far as your flies, do you have a place like on your website where you could see or could we find somewhere what some of these flies look like? Um, I'm one of the signature tires for Rainey's flies. Oh, so cool. if you go to Rainey's, uh, catalog their online stuff you'll see um you know my style of intruder which you know really is not any different than anybody else's i guess the only thing that i i do differently with mine is i make my own shanks out of stainless steel uh spinner wire i use 035 stainless steel wire and i form my own shank to tie my intruders on and the reason that i do that is that over the years where you know i'll spend 35 or 40 minutes tying one intruder on a Japan style hook, once that thing gets wet, if I mm-hmm. put it away wet, then it rusts. And then I've got, you know, all kinds of rust colors, uh, moving through the, mm-hmm. uh, the colors of the fly. And so I, I just started making them on stainless steel shanks that I, I make myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got my own style of skater, uh, that's in there. So if you go to Rainey's, you can see some of the flies oh, that I use. Okay, so there, and they could just, uh, do you have a, a couple names of, of maybe your top patterns that we could find in there, or how would be the best to find, you know, maybe a couple yeah, of think, flies? I think Finnerty Intruder and the Finnerty Skater are oh, perfect. the two that, yeah, would be easiest to probably awesome. find. Awesome, yeah, I'll check that out, and I'll provide links in the show notes for those two. Um, yeah, so for skating, could you talk a little bit about, I guess we've been talking a little bit more about kind of, uh, you know, winter, spring type, type of stuff. Um are, do you do any sort of skating, uh, you know, this this time of year, or are you holding that till things warm up a little bit? Yeah, no, that's a summertime game. I've got friends that uh, will fish skaters for winter fish, but, um, boy, you sure spend a lot of time between grabs doing that. While there is nothing better than having a fish, you know, blow up on a skater, yeah. um, and I, I live for that. Um, I, I'm I'm not that evolved. I still like getting the tug yeah. and having an opportunity and uh, I like them to come a little more frequently than, you know, you can have them come during the wintertime on a skater. So it's mostly a summertime game. Yeah. Um, one thing I did want to mention on fly presentation, um, a fly that is swimming uh, is by far and away um, way more effective than a fly that is not. So mm-hmm. uh, all things being equal, keeping tension on that line and swimming that fly across current is really, really key to getting 
you know, consistent tugs. You know, over the years, I have been very, very blessed and fortunate to stand off the back shoulders of some pretty amazing anglers. And, and that's given me um, some unique insights as to why, you know, guys like Frank Moore and, you know, Harry Lemire and, and, and Mark Bachman, you know, why they catch so darn many more fish than, than the average Joe that's out there. And part of that is the consistency of their presentations. Uh, they're excellent casters, so they throw a nice, straight, tight line that immediately puts that fly under tension and gets it swimming. And Harry, you know, when he and I fish together, he, he always used the term staying connected to his fly. And at first, I didn't really understand what that meant. Um, and so hmm. I kept at it and uh, finally kind of got a, a handle on what it, what he's referring to there, and that is every swing of that fly, he knows exactly where it's at in the water column and exactly what it's doing, and it's mm-hmm. doing exactly what he wants it to do. He's literally staying connected to that fly as it swings across, um, and that is so important. I find where you know folks that come out and fish with me, they'll throw a cast, and it's not very straight or tight, um, they're not getting that fly under tension and they're not really controlling the swing with the tip of the rod, as I mentioned before, either getting out ahead of the line a little bit to pick up speed, uh, or staying behind the line to slow it down. And if, if you can stay connected to the fly and know what that fly is doing is it's swimming across under tension, you know, just enticing that fish, um, you're just not as effective. So mm-hmm. really focus on good presentations. You know, keep that fly swimming and moving uh, all the time, searching out new water each cast, and you'll start to uh, notice an increase, I'm sure, in the number of encounters you have with steelhead. Yeah. Especially in the- that, That's cool. Yeah. Harry Lemire, I was uh, talking to, you know, Scott about, he was mentioning um, him and how a big part of his success was, and what he learned from him was that, you know, he just observed what was going on in the river, you know, and that's a good point to remember. And I think you're making that too. There is that, you know, we shouldn't be just jumping in, you know, check out what's going on with the water and the seams and take your time. Yeah, and, and and I think was he, he was also a, um, a single handed fisherman, right? Yeah. Yeah. The very first time I fished with Harry was up on the sock and, you know, growing up as a kid, you know, clear back in the seventies, you know, reading Trey Combs's books about Harry and, um, you know, he was a legend and uh, such a huge role model for me growing up. And, and now here I am uh, at a place in my life where I'm, you know, blessed enough to have met him and spend time with him and, and get to fish with him. And we're standing at the tailgate of his pickup, stringing up rods for the very first time together. And he's the grandfather of modern day spay casting. So I'm stringing up my, my two-hander and Harry breaks out this little sage single-hander. And I was like, Harry, what are we, what are you doing, buddy? And he explained to me that, you know, he learned how to spay cast and he loved to fish with a spay rod, but particularly in the winter time, you know, you have these fish. If you're the first guy down through the run, those fish are going to be pretty darn close to the bank. Mm-hmm. And Harry said with his spay rod, you know, he could throw a hundred feet of line. And so he would. And what he dis- discovered was that more often than not, his fly was fishing in a part of the river where the steelhead were not laying. And so he would fish the single-hander because it would keep his cast in tight where those fish were. 
<laughs> and and he really enjoyed catching fish on the single hander. I think everybody would agree yeah. that a single hander is pretty tough to beat for fighting fighting a nice you know yep. mid teens or upper teens steelhead. You really have your hands full, and uh, so that's what he fished. And again, he was uh, a believer like I am that you know you don't have to be you know dredging the bottom to find these fish. They look really good up. <laughs> they don't look so good down below them. Um, by that, their physiology, you know, they are an organism that's looking out and up above them, um, not so much down below them. Mm -hmm. So if your fly is all the time above them, it's in the window where they can spot that fly and see it. Um, it's just, you know, getting that speed to slow down, especially, you know, they're, they're, they're cold blooded creatures. So you get really cold water, their metabolism gets slow. And uh, you need to slow the presentation down. But if it's a foot and a half or two foot above them, that's no problem. They will come up and eat that fly. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, following up with that, as far as uh, Harry knowing where his fly is, I mean, if you're swinging your fly out there and you've got your, you know, your eight foot of T14 on and your tube fly, I mean, how do you actually know whether that fly is, you know, a foot below the surface or? you know, closer to the bottom. How, how is it that you understand where, as it swings, it's at? Yes, that, that's a great question. So again, it's choosing those water types that you're going to fish. So if you know you're in water that's, you know, knee deep up to about five foot deep, and it's that current speed that I mentioned before, a little slower than a, you know, a human walking speed, you you make that cast and put the mend in, um, the fly is going to start to sink. And if you have a buddy that can be, you know, fishing with you and, and has a, a vantage point high enough above the water to watch, he can tell you exactly where the depth of your fly is, if, you know, if there's enough clarity uh, as it comes across the swing. So by fishing those waters and those flows and with experience, you're going to know that that fly is probably going to only be about two feet underwater. So if you're in four foot depth, your fly is right where it needs to be. Steelhead, when they lay on the bottom, are typically three to six inches above uh, the substrate. Mm -hmm. And then you figure their eye is another two or three inches above that. Um, the fly is going to come down and across uh, two feet underneath the surface. That puts that fly, you know, anywhere from 16 inches to maybe 20 inches above that fish. Mm -hmm. And it's just right in the perfect zone. Um, if you're feeling that fly touching bottom, you're fishing too deep. Yep. And you know, if you're making that cast and you can see it uh, where it's only four or five inches underneath the surface, then you probably need to uh, either fish a little bit slower water or put on a little bit heavier tip. Yep. Gotcha. Okay. And, um, yeah, so we've talked a lot here about, uh, you know, kind of focused on, you know, maybe fishing in, in March or the, the wintertime. Maybe you can uh, clarify if, if you're over there more in the summertime, you know, how you might fish differently and uh, compared to what we've talked about so far. Yeah, that's the time for the skaters, and that's all I fish all summer long mm. is skaters. Um, you can fish tips. The, the regulations allow you to do that. Um, but after doing it for, you know, five or six months for my fall Chinook season and then through my winter steelhead season, the opportunity to get out there and fish without a sink tip is it. That's it for me. Mm. So yep. I, I don't see any reason. I, I don't catch any, uh, any more fish with... Uh, a sink tip in the summertime that I do with my skaters. And I just love that visual component to the game. The other thing with fish and skaters, muscle memory um, is really, uh, is really key to having a really good presentation by that. I mean, how that 
uh, fly rod feels in your hand or how that line feels as it's coming across current, um, when you do this, you know, thousands and thousands of times, there are these subtle little cues that you'll feel in your hand as that tension builds and that fly line starts to pull across water. When you're fishing a skater, it's right up on top. It's, it's visual. You can see it. And you know exactly what that fly is doing because you can see it as it comes across the surface. When you do that all summer long, it translates really well to that muscle memory that you'll have in the wintertime when your visual cues are taken away from you because the fly is subsurface and down in the water. So if that makes sense, when you... When you're out in the summertime and you're fishing a skater, you get to see that presentation. You get to watch the fly mm-hmm. swing on a cross. And you'll begin to get a sense of what that feels like in your hand by that tension. Well, then when you go to the wintertime and you're fishing a sink tip, that will translate. And, and you'll start to feel those subtle little differences, those little cues about, do I need to pick up the speed of the swing or do I need to mm-hmm. slow it down? Hmm. Nice. So, Summertime, I fish full floating lines. Um, if I have somebody brand new with me, I fish the Airflow Delta, which is a long belly floating line. Um, it's 54 feet long, and it allows folks to uh, get decent distance with their casting uh, without having to worry about stripping in and, and shooting line. That, mm-hmm. that becomes. I try to teach my spay casting in increments. Um, you know, start out kind of baby steps, and then build and add different components to it, and, and mm-hmm. shooting line kind of the last step in that process. So I fish the deltas. They're those, you know, real long belly lines. I fish about nine or 10 feet of tapered leader, usually gets down to around eight pound uh, at the at the fly. And then the flies that I fish all have a foam back on them. And I do that because it's so much easier for folks to keep that fly up in the surface. Yeah. I love muddlers. I love bombers. Um, but, you know, those deer hair style <laughs> flies, eventually get waterlogged and soaked and then the fly isn't up on the surface and then you've got to add some kind of dry fly floatant or yep. uh, put a inch or you know it, it becomes again when I'm guiding I'm you know frequently out there with folks that aren't doing this all the time and so I'm trying to make it as easy as possible on them so all of my flies have a foam back that's designed to uh, keep the fly up on the surface when it's under tension and creating that V wake that we're looking for as it comes across um, over the years, you know, we had a, a technique we used for a long time called the umpqua twitch, where we mm-hmm. put a, kind of a popping motion on the fly. And, you know, mostly just the guides were doing that, but eventually other folks sorted it out and started doing it as well. And I found that the fish, oh, some summers don't really respond as well to the twitched fly. Uh, and if you, you think of it in terms of how many times that summer steelhead has seen that fly come across the surface twitch nowadays, yeah. if you're in the camp water section, there's probably 50 some pools between the camp water section and the, and uh, the beginning of fly water. Uh, and by the time August comes around, those fish have seen thousands of twitched flies. Yeah. <laughs> so I do less of that now than I used to do 15 years ago. If you weren't twitching, you just weren't hardly raising a fish. And, huh. uh, over the last few years, I've kind of gone away from it, but you can do it one, you know, if you want to twitch by all means, go for it. If you don't, you know, I don't think you have to do it. Yeah. Um, again, it's the same technique I talked about um, in fishing for winter steelhead. We start with a fairly short line. We gradually lengthen our cast out to where we're covering the water uh, or we're casting a comfortable amount of line. And then we just start working our way down through the run. 
And the key to this technique is don't pull it away from the fish. If that fish comes up and boils on that fly and you try and pull it or set a hook or mm-hmm. sweep pot or whatever, most of the time you're going to pull the fly away from the fish. you got to wait until you feel weight on your rod. Uh, I know one guy who tells his clients that they have to wait until 10 feet of fly line has pulled off the reel before they can lift into the fish. Wow. Uh, I don't necessarily need to do that. I think you know once you feel the weight of the fish, then just gently lift your rod. Uh, kind of sweep it up just to snug that fly into the corner, and and that's all you've got to do. But you'll have those fish come up and boil on that fly time and time again. Mm-hmm. And if you're trying to set the hook, you're just going to pull it away from them, and you're going to foul yourself up. Yeah. Um, the other tip or the other advice I'd give folks, you know, if you get one to boil, um, definitely don't pull it away. Keep keep the swing of the fly moving. I've had many times where the steelhead miss it on the first pass but they'll come right around as the fly swings another two or three feet and come at it again, miss, fly continues on its swing another three or four feet, and the fish will come up and, and take another swipe at it and then get the fly solid. So continue that swing. Don't, don't just stop your swing or don't uh, do anything uh, different with the uh, presentation of that fly as it's mm-hmm. coming across patient and, and try to remain cool, which is not easy no, to do. No, it's not easy to do. My... My dad used to always tell me, he said, um, one way to do it is when you feel the touch or whatever, just bow to the fish before you do anything, you know, basically do the bow and it just gives you time to drop your, you know, your rod and your body into it. And then, you know, and then kind of come up if you, if you want, but, um, yeah, whatever it is, it's, I think it's, a, it's being patient, which is hard to do when you got a, when you know, you got a monster fish kind of messing with your fly. Yeah. Yeah. So again, if, if, uh, if he misses, uh, you definitely want to follow up with the same cast, same amount of line. Don't take a step. You're just going to put that presentation right back out there and start swinging that fly down and across. And, and frequently, they'll come back on subsequent presentations. Not always, but frequently enough, you definitely want to do it. Mm-hmm. If, uh, if you've made three or four uh, more presentations in that exact same spot and he's not come back to it, then you can either reel in you know, 10 or 15 feet of line and start that two or three foot progression back down to the fish. I call it pumping up the fish. Um, you, when I'm on the roadbed watching these fish, uh, and I've got a pair of binoculars a lot of times in the summer, and I'm watching these fish, and I'll watch my clients fly be 20 feet away from that fish, I can almost guarantee you that I can tell you whether he's going to get that fish within a cast or two. Yeah. And how I can do that is by watching the physical response uh, of that fish to the presence of the fly. These steelhead will see that fly in clear conditions from 18 or 20 feet or more away. And if that fish is going to take that fly, I can tell almost immediately um, as that fly is, you know, 20 feet away, there'll be some physiological response from that fish. You know, his, his pectoral fins will maybe quiver a little mm-hmm. bit or he'll rise up a little higher in the water column. Um, I've seen them open and close their mouth and kind of flare their gills. I've seen that a number of times. I've seen them scooch forward, you know, move <laughs> up, you know, five or six feet and then drop back down uh, after the fly passes. So if I see that physiological response and my client can consistently and kind of rhythmically present that fly closer and closer mm-hmm. and close each time to that fish, by the time that fly gets within four or five feet, um, that fish is just going to pounce on it. But wow. what happens? What frequently happens with most of us, the, you know, the folks that aren't, you know, the Frank Moores or the, the Harry Lemires of the world, 
we make our presentation, the fly comes through, the fish sees it, shows some physiological response, like, yeah, okay, I've got a player here, this fish is going to take this fly, and then your next presentation sucks. Yeah. Or, you know, you get a, a, just a pile of spaghetti out there, and now you've got to check your leader. You break that cadence, or you break that rhythm, and these fish are just like a little kid at Christmas, you know, they have a real short attention span. If you can keep that rhythm and keep that cadence, that systematic coming closer and closer and closer to that fish, um, they'll they'll grab it. Wow. So with the with the summertime stuff with the the skaters, you you've made that presentation. The flies come across. He's boiled on it, not eating the fly. You're going to make exactly the same length, same presentation cast a second time, a third, a fourth. If they if they're boiling on it, keep playing, mm-hmm. keep keep it up. If they're not, and they're not boiling on it, you're not seeing that fish respond to that presentation, either walk upstream a few feet, you know, 10 or 15 feet, or reel in a little bit of line and make the cast, let the fly swing across, strip off two or three feet of line, make the next cast, let it swing across, uh, peel off two or three more feet of line. What you're doing is getting that fish pumped up again. You're showing them that fly from a little bit of a distance, and it's getting closer and closer and closer, and frequently they'll grab it. If that doesn't work, uh, then what I like to do is, you know, reel in about 20 or 30 feet of line and change flies. Mm-hmm. And frequently I'll go to some kind of a small traditional hair wing, uh, usually dark in color or drab in color, and then start that downstream progression. And a lot of times uh, that fish will come back to that wet fly that's uh, presented just just subsurface. Yep. So. That's how I work a player if I get something to show. Several years ago, we were doing a video uh, for this outfit, and they wanted to capture uh, a video of steelhead eating a fly, dry fly. And uh, I was in Upper Burnham standing out on the ledge, and uh, the videographer guy was on the bank, and I started to bring this fly down through there, the skater, and I saw this fish just boil, but he was probably five or six inches beneath the fly, just left a boil the size of a wash tub, but didn't touch the fly. And, you know, I got really excited and I hollered over to the guy with the camera. I said, did you see that? Did you see that? That <laughs> fish just come right boiled on it. And uh, he, he didn't see the fish, but he did see the disturbance on the surface. So I did my game. You know, I tried to work the fish back uh, with subsequent cast. I brought some line in, worked back down to it with the skater, never could get him to eat it. So kind of out of desperation, I put a little green butt skunk on and I started back down through the run, and sure enough, as soon as that fly reached that same spot where that skater had come through, that fish has come up and ate it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it kind of uh, it created a bit of a controversy because it was a fin-clipped fish, uh, so it was hatchery fish, and uh, mm-hmm. we have kind of a, a rule with hatchery fish, you know, on the north. If we catch one, we retain it and get it out of the system so mm-hmm. that it's not cold with the native. And so I, I was like, cool, it's hatchery fish i'm gonna take that thing home and barbecue it mm-hmm. and uh so there's this video of me walking back off the ledge holding this fish through the oh, gills sure. and I, you know it's a hatchery fish and so i'm gonna retain it yeah there was a, a fair a number of people that saw that that commented about oh that was you, know, you should have let that fish go but anyway yeah yeah it, it was it was a it was kind of a cool sequence and, and then to have it on film was, was yeah. really fun wow yeah no those are uh You've been uh, providing some really good tips. This is, I think, uh, definitely for anybody heading out there. They got a lot, a lot of stuff to go on. Um, yeah. So, what's uh, you know, as far as time to fish, does it really matter all that? I guess if you want to go summer versus winter, but you know, when is the you know when do you start fishing and when do you end fishing? What, what's the season look like over there? 
Yeah, so May and November are really the only two months of the year that I won't book trips on the North Umpqua. And I say that, I mean, I have taken people in May and I have taken people in November, but those are folks that have just been insistent. You know, I, I don't really care if I catch a fish. I just want to go fish the north. And this yeah. is the only one of opportunities that I have. Sure. Uh, but if I have people that, you know, want to go and have a chance at catching fish, uh, I generally avoid the month of May and the month of November. November is the time of year when our summer steelhead have scooted up into the tributaries and they're just really not available to us in the main north, you know, where you can fish. Um, and then May, it's just a little bit early yet mm-hmm. for our summer steelhead. Our, we'll, we'll see some uh, fish move into the fly water system in mid-November, but very few. But by July 1st, uh, there will be fishable numbers. And the first couple of weeks of July can be really good. Uh, the fish have not been uh, fished over a bunch. They're pretty grabby and aggressive. And you can have some tremendous fishing that first couple of weeks of July. And then it fishes good all the way through until, you know, about mid-August. Water temperatures start getting kind of warm and it gets, you know, the fish kind of slow down quite a bit. You know, a steelhead responds to warm water uh, much the same a winter steelhead, you know, responds to cold water. You know, each end of that spectrum can really slow their metabolism and uh, make them pretty tough to get to grab flies. So in the summer months when it really starts warming up, then we fish early in the morning and late in the evening. So we take advantage of the cooler water uh, afforded mm-hmm. in the shade the canyon provides. And uh, early morning is, is really a great time to be out there right at daylight. You know, it's quiet. Uh, the water is as cool as it's going to get all day. And, and your best shot at getting a grab is going to be, you know, that early morning session. But I've also had some pretty tremendous evenings, too, when the bats are just starting to fly around. You can barely see. Um, and just the surface will just explode, you know, mm-hmm. as, as, as that skater comes across. Uh, in the winter time, um, it's opposite. I call it banker's hours. You know, most mm-hmm. of our fish in winter time are going to come from 10 o'clock in the morning until about 3 in the afternoon. Uh, so there's no reason to get out there at uh, the crack of dawn. We'll meet up, you know, usually around 8 o'clock, get waitered and start fishing about 8.30 and fish until around 4.30 or 5 o'clock. But that uh, water temperature, um, if it comes up, you know, half a degree or a degree, it can make all the difference in the world uh, in the fish's willingness to come to a fly in the winter months. So, uh, yeah, 9 to 5 banker hours in the winter and then uh, low light, uh, conditions in the summer. The other window of opportunity that you want to all the time, if you've got flexibility in your schedule, um, every summer in August, we'll get a couple, two or three days where it'll be kind of drizzly and rainy. <laughs> and if you have the ability to come to the North on a day when it's rainy in the summertime, yeah. you have some uh, phenomenal mm-hmm. uh, fishing. It just really wakes the fish up and gets them uh, a lot more aggressive after they've spent weeks and weeks in sunny, warm yeah. uh, water conditions. Yeah, that's cool. You know, those are uh, good tips on timing and, and uh, everything there. Um, yeah, so Dean, we're getting uh, close to wrapping this up. I uh, wanted to had a couple other big questions I want to ask you here before we uh, let you get going. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about you know, just as far as resources, so somebody is new heading up there, you know, obviously getting a guide would be a great way to do it, but are there other like online resources or any other information that could help somebody new, you know, the whole, the thing getting up there and kind of finding their first fish? 
You know, I, I don't really uh, I don't really know of any um, online resources that would be helpful. Mm-hmm. The North is really kind of a unique uh, river. It's all basalt, you know, uh, ledge rock bottom that never changes from year to year. Mm-hmm. You know, on the Willamette and the Mackenzie, those you know yeah. streams after every high water in the wintertime, you know, they, they're real Brady and everything kind of shifts and changes around and everybody gets to kind of start off anew at the beginning of each summer season on the Willamette and the McKenzie, but the mm-hmm. North never changes. And so if you, you know, hire a, a guide that's been working there, he's going to be able to show you places where those fish are going to hold year after year after year yeah. after year. Um, when I first started fishing with Frank, it was really kind of unnerving because he'd been doing it for so long that as he's standing off my my back shoulder watching me you know work down through a run as i start getting closer to that spot where there was likely going to be a grab frank and start get ready get, yep. get ready get ready get ready <laughs> and uh and, and that's really kind of unique to the north umpqua because those fish once you learn the river yeah. uh, you really don't have to learn it year after year it's always going to remain uh pretty uh pretty much the same okay so yep uh, that's where getting a guide on the north. Uh, the other thing about getting a guide on the north, learning how to wade the river and how to negotiate, you know, some of it. Mm-hmm. They call it the graduate school of steelhead fly fishing um, for a reason. You know, it's it's very physically challenging. Um, casts frequently can be, you know, greater than a hundred feet uh, to cover the lie properly, and uh, so folks say, you know, if you can catch steelhead consistently on the north, you can catch them anywhere. Hmm. And and I that's true. You know, I've spent a fair amount of my time exploring other watersheds and rivers up in War, uh, up in Washington and throughout Oregon. And, uh, you know, the, the north is definitely uh, a challenging river to uh, to fish. So. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. So basically uh, find a, find a good guide and go from there. Um, is there, as far as boats, I guess the Maybe you can clarify just the the river, the way it's set up. I guess there's a lot more boat fishing lower in the river, and are those also guys fly fishing down there? And kind of then you also have the fly water and, and and water in between. Maybe you can clarify a little bit about you know if you were coming there where where you might he- head out to. Yeah, um, it is boatable, but uh, most folks won't do it. You've got to have uh, some pretty good skills on the sticks to work through the fly water section. There are summertime raft trips and guides uh, in the area that do offer summertime float trips, but those trips are uh, more just kind of splash and giggle trips. They're boat mm-hmm. launches or uh, long distances that afford, uh, you know, a continual float really well, um, but they don't stop and allow you to get out and work down through a run for an hour or two and, and fish. Yeah. So the boat, um, you know, the flywater section is is all walk-in wade fishing. Um down below the fly water, uh, quite a ways down below the fly water, you can uh, find some places to slip a drift boat in and fish. Most of the time, the people are fishing out of the boats where they're, you know, side drifting with hmm. an indicator feed or, you know, something like that. There's uh, boatable water down on the main stem umqua, and I enjoy, you know, getting an opportunity to fish that. But in wintertime especially, it uh, is yeah, oftentimes not real good fly water. It's, you know, high and off color, real turbid and low visibility. And then in the summertime, it's, you know, impossible to fish the main stem because water temperatures are up in the 70s. And uh, most of the summer steelhead have got to make their way through the lower section of the river um, by June 
Otherwise, they get trapped, and, and they've got to find some uh, cold water refugia to, to just you know hang out until things cool down again in September. So for boating, um, the area around Roseburg down is probably going to be your best bet, and there's some places that a guy can get out and swing fish if he wants to. Um, but most of the time, like I said, guys are fishing from the boat and using indicators with beads or you know, okay. something like that. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, and uh, yeah, we're kind of running out of time here, but um, I was hoping to get a little history on on the uh, the north. It's such a there's such a long history there. Do you think something maybe you could break out in a few minutes, or maybe we should hold this off till the uh, the next conversation? Well, I can tell you a little bit about the history. They call it the birthplace of modern day fly fishing for steelhead um, back in the 30s. Uh, guys like uh, Lawrence Mott and uh, Zane Gray and, and his crew would come into the North Umpqua. Uh, back in those days, the highway that we have there now didn't exist. Uh, guys would have to come in on the Boundary Road and then walk down the ridge. You know, and hmm. elevation drop was you know fifteen hundred wow. or two thousand feet uh, to get down to a particular piece of water to fish. Uh, so the highway that they put in in the fifties changed all of that. Um, yeah, you know, it, the North Umpqua used to be known as a trout fishery. It was one of the best trout fisheries in the West. Hmm. And when they put the dam in at Soda Springs back in the 50s, that effectively stopped the downstream migration of the small aggregate that trout need to be able to spawn. And the trout population really plummeted. There are still trout in the system. They're cutthroat and rainbow uh, but they're pretty few and far between. Like I said, I do a lot of snorkeling and diving, hmm. um, and you'll go for hundreds and hundreds of yards uh, between trout sightings on the in the fly water section. Uh, but back in the 30s, that's what folks went there to do is to fly fish for trout, and they they, they didn't even target the steelhead because the steelhead was so hard on their gear. Huh. Uh, you know, fishing silk lines and oh, gut yeah. leaders, uh, you'd one of these summer steelhead, and that that was lights out. You know, this bust up your tackle. And, and so folks would try to avoid the steelhead. They just wanted to catch the trout. Um, I've never experienced, you know, the trout fishery um, like Frank got to do back, you know, before the dam was put in. Mm-hmm. It, it was uh, pretty remarkable. Um, I have people that come from literally around the world uh, to fish the North Umpqua. Yeah. I've had, you know, Tasmania, China, uh, all over Europe. It's uh, one of those places that's kind of on everybody's bucket list. If you're yep. into swinging flies for steelhead, the North Umpqua is, is definitely a, a, a bucket list place to come to. Yeah, it is. It is. It's definitely. I'm hoping to add it add it uh, to uh, my list this year. It's, uh, you know, I haven't been there yet, so I'm hoping to, to, get, to get down there. And uh, yeah, and hopefully maybe even chat with uh, with Frank as well. I, I uh, definitely I've got a, a few uh, you know list of people that I'm hoping to connect with. Um, um, but yeah, no, I, I appreciate you, uh, Dean, coming on here. I think this is for sure going to be, you know, one of the kind of the best episodes as far as tips and things like that. You've done a, a great job. Um, yeah, maybe you can just leave us uh, talk about, you know, the next six months, what you have going. You talk about, um, you know, you got a lot of stuff going on, obviously. Maybe you can give us a fill us in what, what's going to be new here for you. Yeah, so a lot of the work that we're doing with the Steelhead Initiative um, for our Wild Steelhead Initiative is monitoring work and partnering with ODFW and helping them fill some of the gaps that they have. Um, you know, all of these agencies, uh, you know, are cash strapped, and uh, it's really hard to manage any of these fisheries without uh, having uh, an idea of how many fish are actually 
uh, returning to these streams. So uh, we've just recently partnered, Trout Unlimited has with the steamboaters on the North Umpqua, and we're working together to uh, get a handle on the fish counting at Winchester Dam. There's been a fish counting station and window at the ladder at the dam at Winchester for years and years and years, but it's always been difficult. Well, here the last 10 years or so, it's been difficult for the agency to man that station and be able to give us uh, timely counts of steelhead passing through there. So the steamboaters uh, put together a project, and uh, now TU has joined them, and we're going to start providing uh, act- accurate up-to-the-minute uh, run sizes as those fish move through that window. So that's, that's one thing we've got going on. Um, we're working with some technology called Bidson. It's a dual-array sonar that you place in a river, and it works 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and all different types of water. Uh, and as salmon and steelhead pass through that sonar beam, it captures it in a digital file that we then go back through. And it's a tool that we can use to, again, provide uh, managers with accurate information about run size. So that's that's some technology that we're working with the Steelhead Initiative on a, a number of watersheds here in Oregon over on the John Day. Uh, we're interested in putting one uh, with ODFW on the Saniam system to get at some of those numbers and then some of the coastal basins. Cool. Uh, so, that, yeah, that's. Right now, that's kind of been the focus of a lot of our uh, Wild Steelhead Initiative work. You know, I'd, I'd encourage folks to go to Wild Steelheaders United, uh, take a look at the website. If uh, the credo makes sense to you, sign the credo and join. You get opportunities to get some really cool science uh, information related to steelhead from our science director, uh, John McMillan. He does uh, Science Fridays, which usually has some pretty cool stuff that a lot of steelheaders don't know about that, mm-hmm. you know, kind of biology you about these creatures and, you know, these fish that we all love so much. Um, so yeah, lots, yeah. lots of good stuff going on. Yeah. Those are all, you know, that's great. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll provide the links in, in the show notes for those. That's perfect. Uh, so yeah. So, uh, Dean, if, uh, people want to find you, where, where should, uh, where should they head to find you? Uh, you have a, some place, uh, you want to note any other places, um, to get in touch with you? If you just Google my name, um, there, there'll be some blogs that'll pop up, and then my website. Folks are uh, welcome to get a hold of me through that. I I try to be uh, mindful of you know responding to emails, and I get a lot of a fair number of questions uh, from folks. You know, I've I've written a number of articles over the years in different uh, regional and national magazines on steelhead fly fishing, and and I still seem to get a fair number of people that uh, find me and uh, reach out to me. So. Yeah, I, I, it's something I'm passionate about. I love teaching. Uh, I love uh, watching the lights come on when somebody has that first grab. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been blessed enough to get get to see that a number of times over the years guiding, and it's always uh, so rewarding to see somebody's you know hands trembling and shrieking with delight as yep. this fish is going line off your heel. So, I know. You know, at the end of the day, you know, we need people to care about this resource. Uh, and be passionate about it. That's how it's going to stay uh, protected and uh, available for my kids and my grandkids. And uh, so, yeah, yeah. I, yep. I, uh, anything I can do to help folks get into it and uh, be mindful of that resource. Uh, keep your fish in the water. Yep, perfect. <laughs> you get one. Uh, you're gonna. You want to take photos of it. 
keep them wet, keep them yeah. in the water. Okay, perfect. Yeah, so that uh, so Dean Finnerty uh, uh, they can find you and uh, yeah, Dean, just wanted to thank you again for coming on. And like I said earlier, I mean, I think this is definitely the the tips you provide are, are going to help a lot of people get into their, their you know either their first fish or, or more fish, you know. So. I wanted to thank you for that. And yeah, maybe uh, eventually we'll have to have you back on. We can hear more about your uh, undercover days. I'd love to <laughs> dig into that a little more. But uh, yeah, I appreciate, appreciate everything, Dean. It's been my pleasure, Dave. Have a, have a great day and uh, easy men. Okay, see ya. Take care. So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes with all the links we covered in this episode, just go to wetflyswing.com slash 19. Please go to wetflyswing.com slash community to connect with the growing Facebook group at Fly Fisher Society. I want to give a quick shout out to Eric Carlson on our Fly Fisher Society Facebook group for posting a link and connecting. Hey Eric, if you want a, a free t-shirt uh, from Wet Fly Swing, just connect with me, send me an email and I'll get you one for uh, being uh, uh, connected with here on our, uh, on our site. So thanks again for stopping by to check out the show today, folks. I'm looking forward to catching up with you soon and maybe even seeing you on the river. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com. And if you found this episode helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes.